You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 62 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. This episode is kind of like part number three of a trilogy or a trinity. The first part of this trilogy we had in episode 53 when I talked to Lorenzo who runs the Psychedelic Salon. And then uh, part two of this trilogy is episode 56 when I talked to Jacques who is the man behind the band Nature Loves Courage and a good friend of the late Terence McKenna. And now in this episode number 62 I'm talking to Matthew J. Palamary whereas he's also called Matteo. And all these three guys are friends, and that is why this episode is the final and third installment of this trilogy. So, without further delay, let's talk to Matteo, who's a shamanic explorer, a teacher, and an award-winning author. So, thanks for being on the podcast. It's uh, good to be here, and I thank you very much for having me. So tell the listeners a bit about uh, who you are and what you do. Okay, well, uh, my name is Matt Palomari. Some people know me as Matteo. And I am a perspiring writer. And I've been writing uh, about and studying shamanism most of my life. And uh, I have 10 books in print. Uh, I've also written a bit of, I've written a bit of everything, some horror, some science fiction, um, but the gist, primary gist of my work is in shamanism. So uh, I have a historical novel called Land Without Evil, which was about first contact between the Jesuits and the Indians in South America, but it was told from the Indians' point of view. And that got turned into an amazingly awesome uh, stage show in Austin, Texas a few years ago. Um, it was a Cirque du Soleil type of show. And then I have uh, a memoir titled Spirit Matters, um, which uh, a couple of your former guests are in, uh, one of them being Jacques or Poloka, Poloka Lele, I'm not sure how he uh, presented himself on the show, and of course Lorenzo uh, on the Psychedelics Line podcast, who is also, uh, they're both very good friends of mine. And uh, I've also been teaching writing um, for over 25 years now. And I have a book I'll call a uh, fantastic fiction with a PH, a shamanic approach to story structure. And it's all about uh, shamanism and writing and the hero's journey and all those kind of things. And I've been going into the Amazon for 15 years, uh, quite a bit, um, working with ayahuasca. So um, I have a long passion and history with altered states uh, and shamanism, which actually go hand in hand. And um, I've been writing and, and researching uh, most of my life. Um, I think that's a pretty good start. Yeah, and you, you mentioned that you were uh, teaching writing in a shamanistic way. Yes. Uh, but how does that work? Because usually shamanism is an oral tradition. That's true. Very good point. 
Uh, and of course, um, oral tradition traditions, uh, which was the primary mode of storytelling, evolved beginning in, in, in the Middle East and then really coming to fruition with the, the, uh, the Greeks. When oral traditional storytelling, which is how cultures were preserved, started to get written down, which kind of changed the whole game. But one of the things I discovered, I'm, I, okay, I have a couple of nonfiction books in print and a number of nonfiction articles and pieces all over the place, but I, I'm primarily a fiction writer, a dramatic writer. And the core of a story is uh, the hero's journey, which was brought to light by uh, Joseph Campbell, who's a brilliant mythologist, now passed away. As a matter of fact, he had a huge influence on Star Wars. In any major story, Star Wars uh, in particular, also Harry Potter um, and uh, Lord of the Rings, they all follow the hero's journey. And um, what I discovered about shamanism is that uh, shamanism, shamans were the first storytellers, the first musicians, the first healers, the first performing artists, uh, the first actors, the first teachers, and they carried with them the oral traditions uh, which perpetuated uh, from generation to generation. One of the primary aspects of shamanism is that when uh, someone goes through a shamanic initiation, they must go down to the underworld where they are uh, in many cultures dismembered uh, and then put back together again in a different way. In South American cultures they're swallowed by the jaguar. Um, in many other cultures and cultural myths uh, they get taken by the underworld and it's, it's, it's kind of, a, for lack of better words, a universal myth where they are dismembered and or destroyed or swallowed by the jaguar to face the abyss and then they are put together again in a new way and they are transformed into uh, a new person, a new being, a new mode of perception. It's also considered to be the power path. And so they, by, by going through that transformation, they become a man or a woman of power. So the, the, the psychological, metaphorical, mythical journey that the person takes to transform to become a shaman is exactly what happens in the hero's journey, which is universal. So, uh, in a nutshell, uh, let, let me back up for just a moment. There's a, uh, Joseph Campbell wrote the, the definitive book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, which gets into every aspect of the hero's journey. There are a number of steps. But, in, in a nutshell, what happens in the hero's journey is that the, uh, the hero sets up, the hero is f at first and foremost, they're in their normal life and everything is okay. And then uh, an event happens. In dramatic works, it's called an inciting incident that sets their life out of balance and changes home and everything that is comforting of home and sets them off on their quest. People have heard of it as the, the quest of the Holy Grail, um, all of these things, but they set out on this journey and they have to encounter a formidable opponent in the form of their antagonist, which challenges them. And metaphorically and psychologically, that antagonist actually represents the shadow of the hero, the person. And they have to go and face that at some point and face their deepest, deepest darkest fears. And then by doing so, they become transformed and they, get, uh, they become uh, a, a person of power and then they come back and they overcome all their fears and shortcomings. And if you look at Harry Potter 
and you look at Lord of the Rings and you look at uh, Star Wars, which are just the three biggest examples that really lay it out, that's what happens. Luke, Luke Walker becomes a Jedi Knight. Harry Potter becomes a Wizard of Power until he can finally uh, confront and defeat uh, Voldemort. And of course, there's Frodo and the Ring of Power and the Lord of the Rings and, and all of that. So um, it's a primal uh, embedded myth in the uh, collective consciousness of humanity. And every story has those elements. And they all go back to shamanism, which is where everything began. How did you discover shamanism? Um, in a number of ways. Um, my first exposure to it was through uh, the works of Carlos Castaneda, which I read, gosh, probably 45 years ago. And even though it's since been proven that um, a lot of what he said that was uh, marketed and put off as uh, nonfiction, he actually made it up. But it doesn't uh, negate the validity of what he had to say and a lot of what he had to say. And, and an interesting sort of note, um, in modern society, now in this day and age, in the 21st century, uh, news and journalism, which is supposed to be truth, is more often than not a lie. And fiction writing, dramatic writing, which by its very definition is a lie, is actually about truth. So I was fascinated with uh, Castaneda and what he had to say and I also started off at a young age um, seeking out every altered state I could find and I went through everything you know from sniffing glue to drinking to uh, marijuana to LSD you name it I tried it I did a lot of it um, some of it much of it was a dead end so uh, and much of it was very very valid so um, I was really getting into writing, and I was writing darker stuff, horror, and I started researching the lycanthropy mythos, which is werewolves, which is shape-shifting. And I discovered that uh, that whole shape-shifting mythology was tied in probably the most strongly in any place, uh, anywhere else on the planet, more strongly in South America than any place else. And then I made the connection that visionary plants in altered states, which are, or which are hallmarks of shamanism, um, were mostly concentrated in South America. And so um, I got to the point of researching where I had to go and experience it myself. And that's a whole shamanic thing. One, one, of it, one aspect of uh, shamanism is being able to go to another realm, um, another dimension, whatever you want to call it, and bringing back some knowledge that's going to help everybody else, which is also a miniature version of the hero's journey. One of the uh, things that really tipped me over into it was uh, I took an, a course in anthropology some years back, which was everything I had already been researching on my own. And then my professor at the time um, was uh, giving an honors course in the next semester. It was called um, A Forest of Symbols, orientation and meaning to South American Indian religions. And so I took that course, uh, and as it turned out, that professor of mine actually had been a classmate of Castaneda's, and I learned about South American Indian religions, it's, and it's where I discovered um, the story, the actual true historical story of Land Without Evil, which is my hardcover novel um, that was turned into a show that I mentioned earlier. 
And it all fit. So once I did that, it plunged me in a new way. And then I started really digging deeper into a lot of things. And, and, I, and of course, then I discovered uh, Terrence McKenna and Sasha Shogun and um, the rest of the uh, elders and the keepers of the knowledge of the tribe. It was interesting that you mentioned uh, shape-shifting because when I had my very first ayahuasca ceremony, uh, and this I had never done any altered state except cannabis, I guess, but not nothing else, not LSD or anything like that. And I was expecting to have visions, but I didn't have any visions because I transformed into a wolf, which was so surprising to me because I always I expected to see something. I didn't expect to change physically. So it was interesting you mentioned that because that's exactly what happened to me. That's that, that's awesome. The wolf was my primary totem. And then when I was doing all the extended work in, in South America, in the jungle and in the Andes with different plants, uh, the condor became my primary totem for a while. And then the hummingbird came in and took over, which has been the most amazing. And if you look at anything I have online anywhere, there are hummingbirds all over the place. One thing I've uh, noticed uh, working with ayahuasca is that before I used to enjoy watching and I also write some myself, like horror-related re- horror material. But have you noticed any like shift from that, or do you still enjoy horror? Well, th- there's a couple of ways. Um, I did go through a big shift, but w- one of the things, um, I don't know how much experience you've had with ayahuasca, but I've had a lot now, more than most people that I know. And one of the things I have discovered is that um, ayahuasca teaches you about the light and the dark. And if you, if somebody was to go, oh, I just want the light and I just want to be spiritual and light and la, 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 they're missing half the point because the light and the darkness are complementary. And if you continue on the path, you should uh, at some point come to discover sort of a middle ground where you accept the light and the dark. So um, I was getting very deep into a lot of horrific things. Part of it has to do with uh, where I grew up and what I went through growing up and those kind of things. And then I got to a point where I was very deep in it and I actually had had a, a huge uh, set of encyclopedias of serial killers and a huge set encyclopedia of uh, crime that I'd spent a lot of money on. And I thought, I don't need to go here anymore. I'm done with this. And so I just took all those and gave them away to uh, another friend who was writing horror. But, but there's a thing about horror because ho- horror teaches you about fear And a good horror story is actually a a morality tale. But there are nuances and differences. It's kind of, it can be equated to porn in a lot of ways. Porn can be interesting for a few minutes, then it gets boring. And just gratuitous horror simply for the sake of slice and dice and just just gratuitous, that kind of thing, doesn't accomplish much. It really is kind of the equivalent of porn. But um, a good horrific story, well told, is a great morality tale that will make you think, and that's really the purpose of it. And it also allows you to uh, confront fear, sort of on your own terms. Like if you're, if you're uh, reading a horror novel, um, and it gets to be a bit much for you, you can just close the, you can close the book. If you're watching a movie, you can actually close your eyes. So it allows you to take fear. Um, sort of at your own pace, at your own level um, of whatever you can handle. It's interesting because I just published the darkest novel that I ever wrote 
um, called Night Whispers, which is set in a Boston neighborhood of Dorchester, where I grew up. And um, it was very dark, but it was a, a, a big, big tale um, having to do with, you know, morality and what is right and what do people do. One of the primary things um, of writing, dramatic writing in particular, actually, is that um, people struggle over characters and character development and this and that. And one of the primary things of dramatic writing is that character reveals itself through conflict. So you have to put your characters in conflicted situations in order to discover who they are. So there's that even that whole thing of putting them into conflict and the hero's journey and the underworld and the dismemberment is all about facing fear. So when it's done properly, it's done well and it can be very therapeutic. And then, and then as I said, it can also be done in a gratuitous way that it's just not accomplishing anything positive. Yeah, maybe that's what I meant. Like this slice and dice, as you mentioned, <laughs> I turned off from that. Yeah, and I, you know, and I don't blame you. There used to be a a, a I don't know, sort of a battle going on in the in the genre field of horror, and it was between uh, what they called uh, quiet horror, and I think the other one, what do they call? I think they called it cyberpunk. No, not cyberpunk. Uh, God, there was another name for it, but it was basically the the whole sort of slice and dice thing. Uh, the name may come to me in a little bit. It's escaping me at the moment. Um, but there are two elements of it. So too much is not good and gratuitous is not good. And it is a turn off and it's, and it's you know, dumb. But, but, uh, but I do have to say that a lot of the horror that really is like that and over the top is geared toward younger people, even kids, just to scare them, you know? Have you noticed that you, you've changed since you started working with ayahuasca compared to before? And how can you distinguish you've changed and it's not just a change that would have happened with age? Yeah, no, good, good question. Um, so I grew up in a tough neighborhood. I was one of the original tough guys. Uh, poor and all that stuff, lots of violence, all those kind of things. And I discovered as I grew older, especially into my 20s, um, that I was disconnected with my feminine side and my emotions. And kind of what I mean by that is um, I went for 30 years without crying. And um, it wasn't like, I'm not going to cry. <clears throat> it was like there was nothing there. And so when I started working with the ayahuasca, um, it put me in touch with my feminine side, which is which was all but non-existent. And I went through a period of being uh, very emotional. And those first few times I really cried, boy, it really came out. And then a funny thing happened. Um, I went from that and then going through the emotion and my, my intuition suddenly shot up tremendously. And so um, what I came to realize is that I was very much left brain oriented like, like most, probably the majority of males are. And I was neglecting my right side, which was the feminine intuitive, which is ultimately connected to the heart. And one of the great things that ayahuasca does is it helps to explore that 
As a matter of fact, um, uh, my memoir, Spirit Matters, that I mentioned, um, which is also available as an audiobook, the opening chapter is called A Waking Dream. And the reason I called it that is because um, what happens in ayahuasca is, um, okay, no normally at, at quote-unquote baseline consciousness, um, our left brain is dominant, especially males. And so we do our thing and we go through our day and we solve problems and we function and we control our world the best we can doing that. When we go to sleep at night, the left brain gets a rest. And once it gets enough rest, the right brain opens up. And what happens when the right brain opens up is that you have dreams. And in those dreams, you can be in the most absurd situation and you totally accept it. Like normal, like you'd be flying or doing something that would normally not be normal in any way, shape, or form. But when you're in that state of consciousness, you just accept it as totally normal. And all the imagery and all the things that happen in a dream is actually the language of the right brain. And anybody who spends any time exploring their dreams deeply will come to discover that there are um, images and symbols that, that are relevant to them that will come out repeatedly because it's the right brain's way, the, the suppressed emotional side that's trying to communicate. So when you drink ayahuasca, what happens is that your right brain gets turned on and your left brain is still awake. And so it really is a waking dream. And, and through my experience, all of the people who, who have had the biggest problems with ayahuasca and the biggest fears and the most traumatic moments are the ones who have been the most intellectual because once they drink it and get into that state of consciousness, it's no longer, they're no longer in a rational state of consciousness. It's, it's non-rational. It goes in all directions. And, and sometimes the stuff that comes out of the right brain is coming so quick People make the mistake of trying to figure it out in that moment and and when they're really intellectual and they can't control it that's what really sends them spinning off into to hellish realms when in you need to just accept what's happening in the moment and don't try to interpret it just roll with it i mean you may be able to understand bits of it here and there but you really need to just roll with the whole thing and and experience it and then, in the days and the weeks and months or whatever that follow, that's the time where, you, where your uh, left uh, intellectual brain can catch up and start to make sense of it. Uh, I'm often quoted as saying that, in many respects, the time between sessions and ayahuasca journeys and explorations, in many ways, the time in between is actually more important. Uh, a good analogy is in music. Every musical note and rhythm and beat that's struck is very important, but what people don't realize is that the spacing between the beats is just as important, if not more important. So, you know, it's an expansive process. But how can you be sure that when you're thinking about what you've experienced many months later that you're not, like, adding things, I mean, interpreting it in a way that might not be actually what it should have been, like you can like lie to yourself easier many months later people do that especially people who are newer with ayahuasca but when you continue to work with it certain themes and things will come up and they'll repeat themselves and you realize oh god man was i out to lunch there um in fact um i call that my time travel theory and it, it kind of goes like this if i had an experience many years ago where I felt righteous and justified. And then I 
re-experience that in an altered state like in ayahuasca and I see it from a perspective that I hadn't seen it from before and realize that yes indeed I was in fact wrong back then then when I integrate that and I come forward so to speak back through you know as I say time travel theory I have a whole nother perspective on that thing that in that situation where I thought that um, this other person was being a jerk I was the one that was being a jerk so when you continue to do the work, different themes will pop up. Sometimes I'll have a vision, and then three years later, I'll have another vision, and the pieces will all fall into place. And some things are um, pretty much self-apparent. But it's a very good point because um, some people feel things so strongly when they're having an ayahuasca experience that they think that, that they are getting something or improving or learning, and they are, in fact, not. There is a... Um, for lack of better words, an unknown questionable aspect to it. But if you continue working hard on the path, you start to come to the realization that uh, everything is energy. And that is a uh, shamanic viewpoint. And the more you work at it, the more you come to realize that different energies feel different ways. So you can get to the point of um, something when you feel the energy and it doesn't feel right, you know it's not right because of how it feels. And in the same way, when you're, when you're hitting something that's right, you know it's right by how it feels. And many people in the early parts of their ayahuasca experiences find something that's exciting or thrilling or insightful and they jump on it thinking that it's the be all and the end all when in fact it's not. Oftentimes it's just a glimpse of something else. So it's something that comes through experience and working and working and working. Um, and there are really fine shades of nuance because so many people think, oh, uh, I have all the answers now, and I'm in charge, and this and that, and I know everything, when in fact they don't. And the more you go on this path, the more you realize that the more you don't know. And of course, the more you realize, the more you don't know, in my humble opinion, the smarter you get. What is your uh, philosophical view of this other realm? Is it uh, in your mind, or your higher self, or another dimension, or heaven, or... What, what what's your theory if you can have one um it's i would even take it the next step and and not call it a theory in my just in my universe i can't speak for anybody else but in my universe it's all about energy so somebody who's gluttonous and overweight and really out of it and maybe they're always intoxicated on alcohol or heroin or something like that they're cultivating a lower vibration which doesn't feel good and that's why they keep trying to take things because it's a lower vibration but when you get into for arguments like uh, the dreaming realms it's another vibration it's not heavily earthbound and you, can, you can in fact fly in a dream and when it's happening to you in that moment when it's happening to you it's very real in that moment so there is a lot more flexibility in dreaming states uh, and, and people even uh, say that that is actually the astral body where the energies are um, less dense and um, you have more freedom and more things are available. In my experience, that's what happens when you drink ayahuasca. And I even I believe that one of the reasons you often get sick and your body either uh, shits or vomits is because your body is, is dumping off stuff because the energy is so high it can barely take it so to me and um, everything every state of consciousness is a different 
energy, a different level of energy, a different quality of energy. And that is, in fact, uh, factually been proven with brainwave monitoring, you know, alpha states, theta states, you know, meditative states, uh, excited states. Those are actually facts. When the mind is in different states, it is actually working at a different frequency. And frequency is a matter of spectrum. So, um, in my humble opinion, the more uh, expanded your consciousness becomes and the more aware you become of things that you completely missed before, you're actually vibrating or uh, perceiving at a higher dynamic, a higher energy, a higher frequency. And you get to feel unsensed and you start to see connections that you never saw before. And you start to be able to predict things and you start getting flashes of telepathy. So, um, in the end, altered states in shamanism, let me back up on that for a second. One of the um, hallmarks of shamanism is the ability to navigate altered states. A shaman is a master at navigating altered states of consciousness. And if you look at altered states of consciousness as tuning into other dimensions, then they can become masters at navigating other dimensions. Now, you can do that in ayahuasca visionary states and dreaming and other states of consciousness, uh, you know, at all points in between. But the, um, when you learn the skill of navigation, regardless of the energy or the state of consciousness, then you can be in uh, a normal waking state, so to speak, a normal baseline waking consciousness, and you can be confronted with a situation that may be threatening or surreal or unbelievable in some way. And the skills that you learn navigating the visionary altered states of ayahuasca and other places can come to play upon your normal waking everyday consciousness. And you can navigate difficult situations that you may not have been able to navigate before at all. You know, when you are in this other realm and, uh, it, you know, it feels very real and you might get vis uh, wisdom about uh, your life and how to improve your life... But then when you come out of it and like the next, even the next day, um, there's this thing where you can start to doubt that what you experienced wasn't that real at all. It was just imagination. And then that also can lead to, well, maybe that advice wasn't real either. So maybe I should ignore what was said. You know, have you ever encountered this philosophical problem? Uh, numerous times with myself and other people. Well, one of the things um, that's important is you can get personal revelations in an ayahuasca session that are very meaningful. But if you don't follow through on what you've been shown, then you're wasting your time. So there are things that you will know are personally relevant, uh, things that can come to light. Like, uh, I'll give you a good example. Um, I brought my uh, ex-girlfriend to a session a couple of years ago and it was her first time and she's always been fidgety and antsy and couldn't sit still well she went into that session with the intention of trying to discover where that came from and suddenly she flashed back to when she was a, um, a kid and she had had to have a, uh, a back neck brace on and she distinctly relived the scene where the doctor told her that you have to keep that brace on all the time unless you're moving. So your only excuse for taking that brace off is if you're moving. Otherwise, it needs to be on all the time. 
Well, that's what stayed embedded in her consciousness for years and years and years. And, and, and she, you know, what happens with things like that is you forget where they originated. And when she had that realization and relived that moment, she saw where her uh, fidgetiness came from. Now, that for her was very real, very subjective. There was no illusion or delusion about it. She specifically relived that moment and found out why she was the way she was. Does that example make sense? Yes. So those things can happen. But you can also get caught up in things that you believe to be, someone could believe to be just as true in their own way, but it's not, like you mentioned. That is a very real danger, and I'm really glad you brought that up. Last time I was in uh, in the Amazon doing ayahuasca, there was a girl there who drank many, many times and never um, never had any visions and or found herself seeing things. Well, I've had those experiences as well where it's very emotional and you just have memories of your life. But, I, you know, now and again you can have one of those. But every night for many, many, many times I thought I was... Uh, quite extraordinary how, how how that could even happen do you know why why some people just never get it yes there are there are numerous reasons i can give you a few primary ones to to give a good framework um first off um everybody is different in terms of their genetic and neurochemical makeup we are not all the same a lot of times women just need a little bit of something and they have very powerful experiences where guys may need to take three or four more times to have an equal experience, if any. But uh, additionally, there are some people who ayahuasca simply does not affect. I don't know what the numbers are. It might be one out of every hundred, but there are some people it just simply does not affect. Some people go, I, I have a friend who went for years and did a lot of work with it and felt an intuitive things but never had any visions and then all of a sudden one day bang he had them so th there are the fact that we're all uh, physiologically different makes our personal experiences different and everybody experiences things in different ways so some people may get full-on visionary you know flying colors and all of that and other people may not they may just get a feeling or a knowing um, I've had experiences where there weren't as many fireworks, but they were more internal, and I still got some really good inner work done, and I was shown things uh, that I needed to see and learn. So um, it's important to sort of be open and and be aware, you know, that you're not always going to get the best uh, things. You're your ego is always looking for a chance to jump in and take credit for everything and be the star of the show every chance it gets. And it's something that has to be constantly watched. Do you think you can work with ayahuasca for many years and uh, still like have the outlook of an atheist? Well, let me address the atheist for a moment. In my humble opinion, all atheists actually believe in God. And I say that because they have set themselves up as God. And what I mean by that is they have made the decision in their mind and in their being that there is no God. That's what they say. There is no God. 
Well, just the very fact that they made that, they just made the ultimate decision that there is no God. That actually makes them God by making that decision because they have made the ultimate call for being or not being, a reality or not reality. They have made that call. As soon as they say there is no God, they ultimately set themselves up as God and the center of the universe being between their eyes where their perspective is. I believe a lot of people say they're atheists, not fully sort of understanding, and I, and I give them credit for being atheists, and I love atheists, and I get along with them great, because they're not following some religion. I mean, look at all the the tragedy and the death uh, and all the, the horrible things, the real horror show that goes on in this world around religion and, and quote-unquote God or somebody's conception of God. All those things are off base, and a lot of people who say I'm an atheist because this, in, in essence, what they're really saying is, is I'm not buying into all that bullshit. And I, and I give them credit for that. I, uh, I went years ago to a, a bookstore that was sort of a spiritual bookstore, and there was this sort of guru guy there. And he said, um, I have been here and I have, uh, I've been asked to come here to speak about God. But as soon as I open my mouth, I'm lying because I'm suddenly putting restraints on it or trying to express something that is truly inexpressible. So uh, in my opinion, in my experience, you can go infinitely deep within yourself and you can go infinitely deep outside of yourself. There's, there's really no ending either way. It's too big. It's way too big. We really are less than microscopic bacteria when you look at the whole big picture of things. And it all comes down to uh, perception. So um, for me, it doesn't matter whether you think you're an atheist or not, because in the end, some truths are very uh, self-apparent. One of the things I love about sacred geometry, for as an example, is that the, you just look at it, and it's self-apparent. You know, you look at one-dimensional things, two-dimensional things, three-dimensional things, and you just look at it. And just by looking at it, it's a self-apparent truth that you can't argue with because it's in a geometric form that's right there in front of you, if that makes any sense. Yeah. You know, when you're an atheist, you're actually not really, that you're not believing in God. You're just not believing in the God that people present to you. And those people who present God to you, they usually don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> I could not have said it better. You just, you just hit the nail on the head, brother. That's it. You know, one of the things that drew me to shamanism is that every single religious belief in the world and everything that, that's ever been all came out of shamanism. Shamanism is the very first. Yeah, I, I've had that experience as well where I've, I've had, and people, my friends of mine, some of them have had very Hinduistic visions. I've had very is Islamic visions, like of Allah and things. And, and, and none of us are from these religions, you know, at all, you know. Right, right, exactly. But, but you, you could see... God or Allah or Buddha or Jesus or, or, you know, Krishna. I mean, they're all could be considered uh, manifestations or different aspects of the divine or different aspects of the infinite uh, mystery. You know, that's probably one of my favorite expressions now is the mystery because we don't know anything, you know. We really don't. We think we do, but that's just really uh, ego. Yeah, I have a friend, uh, and we've done ayahuasca ceremonies 
ceremonies a lot and um, he always has this problem that he wants to like find out and he he, he finds out but then the next day he kind of like forgets and, and I keep saying to him maybe it's, there's nothing to find out maybe you should instead like feel and and learn um, you know improve yourself because you will never get the answers do you feel like this also like to, to chase an answer to something like what is the world what is everything you're never going to get it I, I agree. There, there's a couple of points um, you make me think of. The first is, in my case personally, everything that I have to say, I consider to be an offering. I've been teaching writing, as I mentioned, for over 25 years now. I teach at major writers' conferences. As a matter of fact, this coming weekend, I'll be teaching at the Southern California Writers' Conference here in San Diego. And then in June, I'll be teaching at the week-long Santa Barbara Writers' Conference. And I have a lot of experience and I've had some really big mentors like Ray Bradbury and Charles Schultz and a number of other people who, who mentored me. And everything I have to say is an offering. And so people can take it or leave it. I don't care. You won't hurt my feelings. Uh, this You ask me, I have an informed opinion. Here it is. But you can take it or leave it. I never, ever, ever would force anything on anybody. Just like I would never, ever force anybody to, like, to drink ayahuasca. That's, that's a sin, you know, or to give somebody something and not tell them, that's crazy. But I can say to you, hey, I've got, you know, 30, 40 years experience here, and here's something if you want to come, here it is, and I'll be there for you. But it's your choice. It's not anything pushed on me. You know, like the whole the crazy thing about, you know, you don't, you don't believe in Allah the way I do, then I'll cut off your head. Or, you know, if you don't believe in Jesus, then you should be, you know, crucified or, or killed or whatever, you know what I mean? All that crazy stuff. It should always be an offering. And it, it brings up a really great piece of uh, wisdom that one of my uh, shamanic teachers taught me, which I think is appropriate at this point. So it's a little bit of a story about um, the Zen master who has the answer to everything. So, you know, the, the, uh, the acolyte went to the master and said, you know, I heard that you have the answers to every problem in life. Can, can you share your wisdom? And so the Zen master said, it's a four-part process. Number one, too many thinking. Number two, put it all down. Number three, only go straight. And number four, keep don't know mind. Keeping don't know mind is being open to offerings as opposed to trying to force everything. And keeping don't know mind is admitting that you really don't know anything. So whatever comes your way, then you can deal with it in a more uh, humbled and balanced way. It's being uh, open and accepting, which is one of the keys to growth. Yeah, well, that's one of the things also that I think I got the most out of listening to Terrence McKenna or read his books is this bit about... I don't know if he's the originator, but, um, but, you know, the only truth you can have is the direct experience. That, my friend, is a definition of shamanism. I, I get, I like to get people going sometimes because, especially if I get people who are, uh, like, Christian-oriented, and I say to them, Jesus, Jesus went into the desert and fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and talked to God. I guarantee you, if I go into the desert and fast for 40 days and 40 nights, 
I'll be talking to God. It's an it's it's actually uh, provoking an altered state, and so in organized religion, people will say, "Well, this is the Bible, and these are the words of God," or "This is the Quran, you know, these are the words of God," and this and that. But what they're actually doing is 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 the the prophet or prophets, be it be it Jesus or Buddha or Zarathustra or you know any other anybody, whoever, whatever culture and religion, they went out somewhere and they had a visionary experience whether by fasting or dancing or taking a plant or a substance. They had a visionary experience. They wrote about it. Somebody took what they wrote and then translated it and then wrote it for somebody else who took it and wrote it for somebody else who wrote it for somebody else who translated it and wrote it for somebody else. And you basically get a philosophy that's been passed down God knows how many times, but it's not the original intent. Where the shaman would say, the hell with all that and the hell with all the books. Just have that experience directly. And then you will know, because any visionary experience, any spiritual experience, by its very nature, is highly, highly subjective. And subjective has to do with how you interpret reality wherever you happen to be. And a shaman who spent a lot of time in altered states getting his perception of reality shifted in multiple different ways and learning eventually to navigate all of them learns to apply those navigational techniques to their everyday life and then they're sleeping and they're waking and they're dreaming and their visions all start to blur into one thing and as a matter of fact in indigenous cultures they see sleeping and waking and dreaming and visions as all one and the same for them it's just a continuum so when you learn to navigate the same way no matter what state you're in the those those energies those realms those dimensions whatever you want to call them start to cross over into each other and then that's when the magic begins do you always go to the peruvian amazon to do ayahuasca or, or do you stay in the states or other countries i've i've studied in um four different traditions of ayahuasca in particular and I've traveled all over. I've also spent extended time in the Andes working with San Pedro. Um, I've done tons of mushroom work. Um, I've done lots and lots of ayahuasca. And as I say, I've worked in a number of different traditions. Because um, it's interesting to see the different approaches of, of what one does and what one doesn't. The first tradition that I really worked in um, in my experience, has been the purest. Even though the shamans are mestizos, their tradition goes really back prehistoric. And in my uh, experience, it's been the purest. So the last few years, I haven't even gone to other traditions because I've had the best one all along. But it's really good to learn the other ways of doing it. You said mestizos. What's that? Um, that's a term for uh, somebody who's both Spanish and Indian. Like, if you go into the Amazon, people people think, oh, I'm going to go into the Amazon and I'm going to meet, you know, the Bora people or the Shipibo people or another particular tribe. And I've also done that and that's happened too. But a lot of the, the, the people have been interbred for a number of years. And so the Spanish that originally came in with the conquistadors have, um, um, you know, merged with the Indians and so now a lot of the people that are born are part Indian, part Spanish. Um, and, and in fact, that's actually what, what Mexicans are. Mexicans are basically Spanish and Indian mix. So in South America when you have a Spanish-Indian mix like that and it's even harder to trace because tribes didn't have 
written records and birth certificates. They they had oral traditions. So people who are down there who are of mixed race are called mestizos. It's M-E-S-T-I-Z-O-S. And even though they may be um, of mixed lineage, they still have uh, and carry the pure traditions that have been handed down. So even though their genetic makeup may have shifted, the traditions and the practices and the wisdom and the knowledge have not. Do you, I mean, if people want to read your books, I mean, you've written so many, but which one would be the best to start with if you say one fiction and one nonfiction? Yeah, well, okay, so um, probably nonfiction would be my memoir, Spirit Matters, because it talks about my journey and all the things that you and I have touched upon in, in this show here are all explored and how I evolved in phases from being uh, basically um, a hard-ass, tough guy, fighting, violent, juvenile, delinquent person into somebody who, who discovered what love truly is and how to manifest it. And it, it's also a guide for people who want to know about altered states. And um, there's, a bit of, uh, there's a bit of Terrence McKenna in there and Sasha Shogun and other people who had big influences on me. So that would be the one that's real. And, and also, as I say, I wrote it as a guideline for younger people so they can find out they don't have to go and get all whacked out with crazy people and you know, crystal meth and tweakers and guns and all that. I already went there and got into trouble and survived. So if you can read about how I did it, you won't have to go there. And maybe you can move forward a little quicker. The other one um, is Land Without Evil, which is the hardcover novel I've talked about here and there because that really has the core of what I learned in the Honors Course in Shamanism. So even though it is a historical novel, um, it's told from the point of view of the shaman. And so there are some really deep, deep uh, shamanic concepts embedded in that. But it's, it's based on real historical events. Yes, absolutely. The, um, how can I put this? The dramatic structure is mine and the characters are mine in that. But a lot of the things that happen, a lot of the situations I took right from their writings. Uh, some of it I took uh, right from the writings of the Jesuits, some of the things that happened. So I plugged them in in my own way, but the overall story is a historical event that's occurred uh, numerous times. In fact, I can tell you very quickly what happened. Uh, these, these are the Guarani, which are primarily in Paraguay, Guarani Indians, but they're all over South America. They're scattered, but they're, they're probably their core is in Paraguay. And what happened over the years and still happens to this day, as far as I know, is that the shamans would have visions that the end of the world was coming. Now, one particular shaman by the name of Nimbi Arapani, some years back, had this vision that the end of the world was coming, and, and he gathered all the people around him, and this is what they did. They went on a migration to the end of the world, and for them, the migration to the end of the world uh, ended up being the Atlantic Ocean um, on the east coast of the South American continent. And so they gathered all these people together and they all went to travel there. Well, most of them got killed and wiped out on the way, except two people. So for me, it was indeed a self It's It was the story of Moses gone wrong, but it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because for all those people, it was the end of the world. And this one particular shaman did it, got all the way there, and everybody got wiped out except two people. He went all the way back to where he started and started all over again. And he died on the march after trying to reach the land without evil for 35 years. So 
that whole thing and the faith and the whole story fascinated me and the fact that it was ironic because it was the end of the world for those people is why I wrote the story and I wrote the story from the point of view of um, the son of the shaman who becomes a shaman himself. So there are some major shamanic in-depth uh, shamanic principles and learning. So anybody who wants to learn about shamanism can learn from there. I'm also happy to say that um, if you go to Lonely Planet Travel Guide and you go look up Paraguay and if they say if you want to find out about the history of Paraguay, read Matthew Palomari's Land Without Evil. Um, so those are the two primary ones. But I'm on Amazon. Just Google my name and all my other books will come up too, which explore different aspects of it. Uh, is there any like shamanic practices apart from ayahuasca ceremonies that you do in your daily life? I don't know necessarily... Well, yeah, to some degree. I mean, I still work extensively with my dreams. I honor particular changes. Like, uh, it's not unusual for me to maybe make a little offering um, at the winter or the summer solstice or the equinoxes. There, Those are important times um, in the energies of what's going on. So I do do that. Sometimes I get asked. Um, I've also uh, led and co-led uh, a number of ayahuasca sessions. So I'm, I help people in that way, and I'm available to people uh, with, with uh, you know, different problems, quandaries, issues. I'm, I'm able to help them discover things for themselves and help them find out um, what they need to do. I have, a, I have an altar with special things on it. Um, so it's, it's really infused in everything I do. Even my teaching, this weekend at the Writers' Conference, I'll be teaching, uh, lecturing, in, um, in a lecture that's called uh, Transformative Narrative, a shamanic approach to story. And it all has to do with personal transformation, which is what happens in a hero's journey, and which also happens to us if we seek and push and learn far enough and hard enough. And do you have a, a website for people to check out? Yes, thank you. Um, www.mattpalamary.com. That's Amazon Mom, A T T, P is in Paul. A L L A Amazon Mary A R Y. I also have um, uh, an author's page on Facebook and on the Sue Network T S U. Um, I have a big page on a place called Cold Coffee Cafe. But um, if people just uh, Google my name, those things will pop up. And and I, and I have a big presence also on Amazon and iTunes. Um, and, and Kindle and Barnes and Noble, I'm everywhere. But Google my name and you can find me in lots of places. And if anybody chooses to reach out and they want to say hi, I'll you know acknowledge you and, and be your friend and all those kind of things. Cool. I'll also link those uh, sites in the program notes to this episode. So thank you a lot for taking the time to talk to me. It was very interesting. Thank you for having me. It's very much appreciated. And the fact that you had Lorenzo and Paloca on there made me want to do it even more. So if you had those guys on there, you're doing a great job, brother. Go to mattpalamary.com for more information. I will also post several links in the program notes to this episode on naturalbornalchemist.com. To conclude this episode, I am going to play an Icaro called Icaro para Yalar Mariazon by Louis Panduro Vasquez. This Icaro is from an album called Ayahuasca Songs from the Peruvian Amazon. Freedom is in the mind. 
Cielo, cielo, ayahuasca, si estoy con la mica llamo, eringue y mica yariri. Cielo, cielo, ayahuasca, si estoy con la mica llamo, eringue y mica yariri. Vuelta, vuelta, limón, guichi, sinchi, sinchi, macha, escrita, mareación con anchita, mi callari, callari. Sinchi, sinchi, hacer una, y sinchi, sinchi, doctor, inchi, mi callari, limón, sinchi, sinchi, medicina. Abrazar mungichi cuerpo y cliente y también paciente y ni ni lloraremos también chimos mi cuerpo y usconcito igual mi cita y usconcito guaguancito y ni ni limpia chira y tu cuerpo y así corrispango nani Cuerpo y urcumam, chay, y así curis pangunanim. Ariranda irandin dandin, tariranda 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 irandin dandin. Cielo, cielo, ayahuasca, si estoy con la mica, llamo eringuichi, mica yariri. Cielo, cielo, ayahuasca, si estoy con la mica, llamo eringuichi, mica yariri. Vuelta, vuelta, limón, guichi, sinchi, sinchi, macha, escrita, mareación con anchita, mi callari, callari. Sinchi, sinchi, hacer una, y sinchi, sinchi, doctor, inchi, mi callari, limón, sinchi, sinchi, medicina. Abraza al mungichi cuerpo y cliente y también, paciente y kunanini, lloraremos también chimos, sani cuerpo y usconcito, igual mi cita y usconcito, guaguancito y kunanini, limpia chira y tuco el cuerpo, y así curis pangonani, faurimonaramonguini, mi cuerpo y orcumando y así corrispondo Cielo, cielo, ayahuasca, si estoy con la mica, llamo eringuichi, mica yariri. Cielo, cielo, ayahuasca, si estoy con la mica, llamo eringuichi, mica yariri.
बोलता बोलता रे मोगे चे सिंचे सिंचे Sinche sinche acero nai sinche sinche doctor sinche me callaré mogi sinche sinche medicina abrazar mogi chi cuerpo y cliente coi gunatan paciente coi gunani ni choraremos sinche Cuerpo yo consito, igual ni si está yo consito. Guaguasito y con anini, limpia chira y tocó el cuerpo. Y así corres pangonani, porimonaramonguini. Tani cuerpo yo comantani, y así corres pangonani. Arirandairandindandin, tarirandairandindandin. Tari-ran-dai-ran-din-dan-din 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 Tari-ran-dai-ran-din-dan-din